It was impossible to foresee, in the spring of 1944, the present cult of the English country house. It seemed then that the ancestral seats, which were our chief national artistic achievement, were doomed to decay and spoliation, like the monasteries in the 16th century. Thank you, Jeff. Welcome to the Country House podcast again. And uh, that, of course, was Evelyn Waugh's preface to Brideshead Revisited about the destruction of English country houses. Uh, we've had some wonderful comments about Jeff's dramatic readings at the start of podcasts. And, and so we love uh, continuing that new tradition. Uh, there were over 1,500 country houses pulled down in the decades after World War II. In fact, in 1955, one substantial country house was being pulled down every five days, uh, which is astonishing to hear, but it also begs the question of, was this a new thing, these, this pattern of dis- uh, the destruction of country houses? You know, we, we're familiar with uh, terms of the past like disestablishmentarianism, which was different, but a similar pattern to destroying for, for changing a social agenda or something. So I, I'm interested to hear both of your thoughts on, was this actually an, a new thing? Thanks, Ben. Uh, well, it's actually, it wasn't a new thing at all. I think what was the new thing was that not replacing it um, after it was demolished. So the British nobility um, have actually been demolishing and rebuilding country houses since the 15th century, when comfort replaced fortification as the primary purpose of the country house. Um, in fact, uh, someone once wrote that for many, demolishing and rebuilding country houses became a lifelong hobby for many aristocrats, particularly in the 18th century, when it became fashionable to take the grand tour and return home with their treasures um, uh, from classical civilizations. Um, I don't know what your hobbies are, chaps, but uh, but mine's certainly not knocking down and rebuilding country houses. And although we're talking today about the destruction of country houses, um, Jeff, just as you mentioned, writing about country houses and I working on designs for new country houses, we are, I suppose, living proof that the country house lives on and is as relevant today. Um, and as the introduction suggested by Evelyn Wall, this was the decline of the country house. This uh, After the war, they were seen as perhaps useless and redundant. But the fact of what this podcast, the audience, the interest and the professions around the country house and the families that um, maintain them and new families building country houses, they are very much important. And the National Trust, the visitors every year, show that it's seen as an important part of heritage. That's helpful. The word hubris brings to mind the, the, the pride before the fall, because, of course, um, country houses were at their peak in the 19th and uh, in the 18th and early 19th centuries. And in those in those uh, decades and centuries, houses were enlarged uh, quite substantially to accommodate the increasing numbers of servants needed to maintain their lifestyle. So many Georgian houses had Victorian wings added and so forth. But of course, less than a century later, this meant that they were uh, unmanageably big in size and often were demolished completely. So it really was sort of the peak of the sort of the British Empire was the peak of the country house um when when there were vast wings for servants and and state rooms and everything else and subsequently after the second world war with high taxation and uh loss of fortune and loss of income from agricultural land so these houses were unsustainable um it's interesting to note 
in the early 20th century, which is when the demolition began to accelerate, um, rebuilding largely ceased. Um, so, um, so by the end of the 20th century, new country houses, uh, which had been built at the beginning of the 20th century by architects such as Edwin Lutyens in the arts and crafts style, were also being demolished. Um, and I think there are a number of reasons for this, uh, Ben and Connor. I think uh, social and political, but also financial. Um, in rural areas, the destruction of the country house and their estates was essentially a form of social revolution. Um, before and well into the 20th century, the local squire would provide large-scale employment um, for for the surrounding um, uh, land. So he provided employment in the sense of uh, servants and workers on the estate. He provided housing. He often provided pe- patronage for the village school and the parish church. He often built a cottage hospital. Um, the big house was essentially the bedrock of rural society. And we can talk about, in another episode, I think we're going to talk about the role of the country house and, and the estate village and, and all the, you know, it was essentially a microcosm of society. Um, but as that began to change, as people began to commute into cities, as people began to move to cities for work, so uh, the role of the country house changed and, and the role of the squire changed. So, Jeff, continuing from that change, at the end of the 19th century, the agricultural prices were collapsing. And so this was a main income for states. With that collapse in the price, of course, and the collapse in the income, many houses, many great country houses couldn't afford to maintain themselves. And in that accelerated in the early to mid 20th century. But in that is a circumstance of the market. In the early 20th century, you had the political implications of death duties and the high taxation. Now, the death duties, a lot of these families became what you'd call asset rich and cash poor. So you have this house, outbuildings, an estate, farmland, but you don't have cash, you have assets. And in I've heard many stories from the First World War where you have the father and son Uh, so owner and heir, on the battlefield, the father dies. Legally, it transfers to his son. A week later, his son dies. And so back home in England, the grieving mother who has lost her husband and her son has also lost the estate, the country house, because she has got a double whack of death duties. She's paying death duties for it. The, the father's death and the son's death. And this happened to many families where the the heir, the future of the estate was lost on the battlefield. Now, after the war, this that accelerated the decline of the country house. But between the two wars, you, you had some new country houses with luchens, but very much the decline continued and country houses were pulled down because of there was dry rot, wet rot, the inheritance tax we mentioned, the decline in mining, agricultural incomes. And then in the Second World War, you had the requisition, the requisition of houses by the army to be used to house officers, soldiers um, in, in, that, in that way. And after the war then, they would have been maybe in a poor state and once again demolished because of lack of funds to maintain them. Um, as you know, the National Trust starting out at this time after the war, James Lees Milne visited many con- country houses around the country, and it was on his report as to whether 
this particular house was worthwhile to become part of the trust. And there were some houses, of course, he would have stayed there with the owners. And if it wasn't suitable, architecturally interesting, then he just had to write the report that that house wasn't uh, going to be part of the trust. And subsequently, a lot of those houses, of course, were demolished. Um, Jeff, what would you say then in th- with the, the beginning of the trust? How did the um, the view, the public view of country houses change from when they were being demolished to becoming places to visit of national interest and the focus of uh, uh, Saturday, Sunday, family day out? Thanks, Connor. Yeah, so so the National Trust was founded by Octavia Hill at the end of the 19th century um, as a means of um, preserving and upholding our, our heritage and our country houses. Um, it was only really after the Second World War that the Trust began to acquire many houses, and even then, it didn't. Uh, it didn't. They didn't. It didn't become hugely popular until, and houses continued to be demolished until well into the 1970s. The turning point is widely acknowledged as being an exhibition at the V&A um, in 1974 called the Destruction of the Country House Exhibition, which was uh, overseen by Sir Roy Strong um, at the time, director of the V&A, um, who um, who got Marcus Binney, who was the architectural editor of Country Life magazine, to curate um, this exhibition, looking at the destruction of the country house after the Second World War in those decades between 1945 and 1975. And that really raised the public awareness of the plight of country houses. Um, So I think uh, it was the biggest, it was a landmark exhibition. It was the biggest um, exhibition I think the V&A ever held uh, at the time. I think subsequently it's been um, outdone by the big exhibitions on on Dior and and Chanel, um, but at the time the destruction of the English country house exhibition was uh, a landmark moment. Really, um, there was actually a hall of destruction in the in the exhibition, which was decorated with fallen columns and illustrations of the thousands of country houses demolished since eighteen seventy five, um, which uh, which really did you know as as the hundreds of thousands of visitors to this exhibition passed through. It raised awareness of house. Um, even then, there were a couple of big um, sales afterwards. The second turning point was the uh, the, the sale of Mentmore Towers in 1975, a year later, and the house was due to be demolished, and it was actually saved by a campaign again by Marcus Binney of Country Life um, and Save Britain's Heritage, um, where they rescued the house from destruction but the entire collection, which was the Earl of Rosebery's collection, um, uh, it was actually the Rothschild family collection because it had been a Rothschild house before it passed into the Rosebery family. Um, the the entire collection was auctioned off in, in probably the greatest country house attic sale or uh, country house sale of the 20th century, um, where the art and the furniture of Mentmore Towers was all auctioned off over several days. Um and it was all to cover the inheritance tax duties following the death of the sixth Earl of Rosebery in 73. Um, so that was, I think, the turning point. Um, ben, what are your thoughts? Well, Connor gave a really good overview um, of the timeline from all the way from the sort of devaluation of agricultural land to uh, what you were talking about there, Jeff, up until the 70s. But I think uh, for me, it would be really helpful to dig into specifics there of 
and sort of go through that timeline of uh, when we're talking about that initial the signs of decline of country houses before they needed to be destroyed um, or before they were destroyed, if, if it was needed or not. What what were those specific things that were happening in social and cultural economical history that meant that that land was becoming more vulnerable? Of course, we know that at that time, what you're investing in, you know, could have been things going on ships, uh, cargo things like that that were very risky and so i suppose land was seen as a guaranteed safe bet for your investment and then uh you informed us there that it it wasn't that anymore which caused fakey ground for the future of the country house uh, could you go into specifics on that what was causing that devaluation in agriculture um, well, I think we can start with actually the the flip side of the coin of what I talked about earlier about the hubris of of the Victorians expanding their country houses with their vast wealth that came from the empire. At the same time as um, as as these country houses were being expanded from the new wealth that Victorian England was enjoying, um, we were seeing a decline in agricultural value because suddenly people were importing. You know, suddenly rather than just living off the land in the UK. Um, we could import uh, fruit and veg and um, and meats from abroad because, you know, after the building of the Suez Canal, for example, um, ships could come from the Far East and from Australia and New Zealand uh, much more quickly. Um, and then, of course, throughout the 20th century, as shipping increased and the innovation of air travel and so forth. So we were no longer dependent on being self-sufficient as a as a nation so that was a big part of it it's funny that the great the wealth that that built the that, that expanded these country houses in the late 19th century um ended up in many ways being its death knell because um because britain no longer needed to produce all its own food from the land uh so that was part of it and then there was the taxation side which connor can perhaps talk a little bit more about and the change in laws the corn laws for example and other laws that meant that landowners um, no longer received such significant income from their estates. Yes, the taxation was incredible. And I believe it was in the mid-20th century, or the later part of the 20th century, that the uh, Duke of Devonshire, in passing Chatsworth House, the estate, to the next generation, there was a death duty of, I believe, 90%. So it was very high. And they had to relinquish properties and um, also paintings of, of by great masters to the state. Um, all these houses that were lost are excellently catalogued on a website called Lost Heritage. And that's a source that I believe we've used, I've used um, to find different houses around the country, those in danger as well. But there's reason to be optimistic as well in the sense that there are houses, of course, today that are still in danger of being lost, but those that have been saved. One such property, which listeners might be familiar with in the popular culture of grand designs, is Hellefield Peel in North Yorkshire, which um, architect Francis Shaw restored in 2004. Um, they converted it into a B&B. Now, this was a castle, not so much a country house in the stately way that you would consider them, but it was a manor house. It was um, on a state, and it was in ruin, and it was restored. Um, this particular house 
Francis Shaw himself is a Tuscan architect designing country houses today. So he restored a country house and he designs new ones today. But another example of a lost country house that was restored was Upark in West Sussex, which sits high on the hill, a beautiful Queen Anne red brick country house um, in the uh, in the Parkland in a Parkland setting, high above the South Downs, and this was lost in a fire, gutted by fire in 1989, and it was restored by 1995 by the National Trust. It was a National Trust property, but in contrast, Clandon Park, another National Trust property, was gutted by fire in 2015. However, this time. It's not proposed to restore it. They are proposing to leave it as a gutted shell. And of course, this has been a controversial decision. Um, Clandon Park, for listeners, is a beautiful, classical, red brick country house with stone dressings and tall chimneys. It's got a landscape garden and it's near Guildford and Surrey. And perhaps, um, Jeff, if you could talk a bit more about Clandon Park. What are your thoughts on the fact that National Trust are not restoring this? However, they did a most excellent job on restoring a park. Connor, I'm glad you asked me to come in there because uh, Clandon is a very special house to me. I was brought up, in fact, I went uh, to prep school very near Clandon and um, and I was brought up on the other side of Clandon and it was the house I visited most as a child with its extraordinary marble hall and its uh, collection. And um, uh, seat of, originally the seat of the Earls of Onslow who lived uh, or still live in the home farm um, on the estate I think the, the trust only had the house and um, 10 acres or so the estate still belongs to the Earls of Onslow and um, and I actually uh, my mother taught at the prep school that I went to and she was on her way home and saw the smoke uh, this was at three or four in the afternoon and, and telephoned me and I hopped in my car and drove straight over and I, I watched Clandon Park burn. I stood in a field next to the Isle of Onslow, whose ancestral home was burning down, and I watched um, the house as the fire ravaged it. I watched it for six or seven hours as the firefighters fought to save it. Um, and I watched as the as the staff, you know, there were actually quite an interesting little trivial fact. They kept, and they still do in many country houses, they kept knives mounted on the back of the paintings so that in case of fire, they could cut the paintings out of the canvas, uh, the canvases out of the frames quickly to rescue them from the house. Now, they didn't rescue as much as they hoped, but uh, they did utilize those knives and and rescued some of the canvases before the house was gutted. Um, but Clandon held a real... Um, I remember I just started work at Country Life magazine when, when that happened. And I came to the office the next day and I told our editor, Mark Hedges, that Clandon Park had burnt down. It, it was just hitting the papers that morning. And, um, and we wrote the news story uh, for that issue of Country Life. Um, what is the future of Clandon Park? What will the trust do? And, um, and the trust's decision not to restore the house, I think, is a great disappointment because it, not only does it set a precedent, but it's, it's not really... Um, the purpose of the trust, they were the ones ultimately who were responsible for it burning down. The trust were responsible for looking, they were they were given that house um, by the Earls of Onslow 
on condition that obviously that they that they look after it and it was their fault that whether it was wire, faulty wiring or a fault in the kitchens which were in the in the basement or so forth it was their fault in many ways that the house burnt and, and they had a duty have a duty i believe to restore it they were given the insurance payout i think 60 million pound plus uh insurance payout uh, to restore the house to its condition and they've chosen to spend that money elsewhere and i think it's a great disappointment but it gives rise to a wider thing of what is the purpose of the national trust is the purpose of the National Trust to make political statements or is it to, you know, because they claim the reason for leaving it as a shell is to, to as it's part of its story, it's part of the story of the house. But that is not the purpose of the National Trust. When it was founded, the purpose of the trust was to uphold and preserve our heritage. Um, and so it opens a can of worms, really, of the wider role of the National Trust. You know, the National Trust is doing all sorts of political things at the moment, um, celebrating different things which are, are political, um, trying to make their houses more accessible. I remember famously in Nickworth House in Suffolk, they put the Chippendale furniture into storage and put beanbags in the drawing room to make it, or the library, to make it more accessible to kids. But is that really the purpose of the National Trust? Is the purpose of it to to make it accessible to kids or is the purpose of it to display our heritage? Um, and interestingly, Ickworth is the same house where the family, um, the Marxists of Bristol, who, who had owned the house, had given the house to the Trust on condition they could still live in a wing of the house. Now, one of the Marxists sold that lease back to the trust because he, he was struggling financially. But subsequently, the current Marquis asked if he could buy back the lease and move back into the house, and the trust refused. And I think that is a great shame because that family was the family who built it, who bequeathed it to the trust, and who should still be living in their ancestral home, albeit just in a wing. And it's not the trust's uh, job, I don't think, to... Um, to make political statements and that is why this movement has has come about in the last few years called restore trust which is uh, a movement a grassroots movement to restore trust in the national trust and to restore the national trust to its original purpose of being custodians of our of our nation's heritage um and, the, and restore trust is something i'm very supportive of um uh, but again uh, not everyone is and i'm sure some of our listeners aren't um and some of them are and uh, but I think it's it's a great movement that's trying to bring the trust back to its roots um, and its original purpose. That's really interesting. Some great insights there about the National Trust. Um, and going back to the the destruction or the the signals of decline, um, it would be helpful to know we've sort of gone over the financial uh, implications and signs. And I'm wondering where did where did the social view or begin to be negative towards country houses in general who where did that movement movement originate um what kind of things caused that i mean we we obviously have the collective hardships in world war one that may have played a part i think it's hard not to uh get too political when talking about the the changing social views on country houses i think it's important to remember that much like today the social views amongst the those in power are often very different to those amongst people on the ground. So I think you'll find for many people living and working on estates, their views on those estates didn't particularly change. It wasn't like there was a revolution in vill- in estate villages where they wanted to get rid of the Lord. I mean, okay, there was more so in, in Ireland, for example, but certainly in, in, in the British, in, in, in the UK, um, there wasn't really a revolution on on the ground. It was more people, actually, who had 
who had come from cities and who had entered power in government who thought that it was unfair or or thought that you know with the with the, with the emergence of socialism across Europe and so forth uh, the idea that that it was unfair that these families would live in houses and so they began to make policies like some of the policies that were introduced after the second world war to tax um, landowners to 90% inheritance tax i think you'll find that many of those policy makers they weren't brought up in the state villages they weren't brought up they weren't brought up on estates um, and ultimately they ended up punishing the people who worked on those estates because by causing the downfall of the landowners and the squires and um, the families who, who own these estates. So the people in those houses, in those estate villages lost their jobs. Um, so I think the social views, there was a real, there was, there was, there was a shift in social move, but the, that, that was a shift across Europe, Ben, you know, the, the, there was a, a, the growth of socialism was seen across the whole of Europe and, and the idea of making everyone um, equal without perhaps quite realizing what that, what that is and what that means. Um, you know, um, but I think it's helpful on that to talk about maybe some individual houses. I don't know, Ben, if you have any thoughts or of individual houses. The one that springs to mind, actually, which is exactly lines up with that uh, notion is um, is Trentham Hall in Staffordshire, which was one of the great palaces of Georgian and Victorian England. It was um, it was an extraordinary um it's now it's now now all that remains is the, is the service block but it was an extraordinary house uh, built for the Luce and gore family um the Luce and gores being earls of stafford and later dukes of sutherland um and in 1873 the visiting shah of persia um was so impressed or so bowled over by the lavish nature of the house that he commented to edward the set of the future edward the seventh of england this house is too grand for a subject. You'll have to have his head off when you come to the throne. Um, and indeed, less than a century later, he didn't have his head off, but due to death duties and so forth, um, the the house was abandoned only in 1905. So that was 1970, sorry, 1873 when that comment was made. And 30 years later, the hall was abandoned because it was too expensive to look after. And... Um, and the hall was demolished in 1912 by the fourth Duke of Sutherland. So in a, in a, in, in a period of only 40 years, one of the great palaces of England uh, was entirely demolished due to the costs of upkeep um, and the change in roles of, of the country house. So, uh, and there were a couple of other really notable country houses that were demolished. I'm thinking uh, especially of, um, of two Robert Adam houses in Scotland. One was, Belbardi House um, in West Lothian, and the other, which was perhaps the grandest house in Scotland, was Hamilton Palace in South Lanarkshire, uh, which was the seat of the Dukes of Hamilton and was widely acknowledged to be perhaps the grandest house in England. We're talking, imagine Chatsworth on steroids. It was almost as grand as Wentworth Woodhouse um, and really was, you know, paintings by Van Dyke, Rubens, Rembrandt, Reynolds, um, an extraordinary parkland setting, mausoleums and so forth. And that house was entirely uh, demolished uh, in 19, between 1921 and 1932. And again, actually, what's interesting is it's a very similar story to Wentworth Woodhouse. So um, forced coal mining beneath the house threatened its structural inter- integrity and the house was demolished um, in the in the late 1920s. Yes, and continuing with Wentworth Woodhouse, that's that's an ex- 
perfect example illustrating this this point about the differing view of the policy that affected the estate and led to the decline of the estate and those who live in the village and work on the estate and the grounds and everything else, that with Wentworth Woodhouse, the local, I believe the colliery board, the, the, the coal miners of that district, that area, wrote a letter to the prime minister at the time. This is after the collieries were nationalized saying, please do not um, strip mine on the Wentworth Woodhouse estate. And despite their pleads, um, they they went in with the diggers and dug right up to the house and undermined the structure and everything and dug up the Humphrey Repton landscape. But um, Manny Shinwell, who was, I believe, the minister responsible for the, for the collieries and for this action, his name is still only whispered if mentioned in the, in the village. There's such disgust towards him and such a great loss locally when the Fitzwilliams left Wentworth, Wentworth Woodhouse. So the house still stood and it stands today, as does the estate. But like we mention in all episodes, country houses are family homes. They're not museums. They are not built just as architectural pieces. They are the representation of a family and that changes and adapts over many generations as we all as all our families do and they like the fitzwilliams this this family was the leaders of the county and certainly the epicenter of uh, rotherham and that part of yorkshire so by removing them you're essentially cutting the head off the body and that's what happened with this estate and many estates that if you go to parts of the country where the country house has been abandoned, demolished, um, just gone entirely, you can see that there's a completely different um, feeling to the town. It, it, maybe the town has been almost deserted as well because the the heart of it has been taken away. The centre point, the nodal point of social life and the local economy has been removed. Connor, it's helpful just touching very quickly on Manny Shinwell again. I know we talked about him extensively in our Wentworth Woodhouse episode, so I won't go into detail, but it links back nicely with Ben's question to me initially about this changing social attitudes to country houses. Manny Shinwell, who was famous for waging war on country houses, was himself not brought up on an estate. He was born in, Cla- in, um, in Spitalfields and brought up in Glasgow. So although coming from a poor family um, and having understandable resentments towards um, the rich and powerful, he didn't know the importance of the estate and of the country house to the workers and the villagers who lived in the surrounding areas. So that links back with what I said earlier about the policymakers often not actually having in mind what, is, what was good for those who worked on these estates. Um, but that circles back to Ben and his questioning of us and our, and our understanding of this area. Ironically, as as Connor said, these are family houses and not museums and stuff. But because of the destruction, many of them are museums now. And we see many of these houses being repurposed because of the vulnerability that they faced. Um, but going deeper on what you've both touched on, what was the real impact of on the families? You know, we we think of the destruction as quite political, quite financial, but we forget that. The, these were real families, real people. Um, what what impact did this have on them? Were they in such a vulnerable position that there was no ability to fight back against 
these policies or changing social agendas? I think so. I think, um, I think, I mean, somehow some families were blessed uh, with such extreme wealth and, and land holdings that they just about managed to cling on to some of them. I'm thinking, for example, the Dukes of Devonshire, as Connor mentioned earlier, who, um, who had two death, death duties, sets of death duties within a few years of each other. Um, and they had to sell Devonshire House in London, which was their London townhouse, which was subsequently demolished. They sold Chiswick House, um, which is now open to the public. Uh, an amazing rotunda that they inherited um, uh, through through cousins several centuries before, and Hardwick Hall, um, built by Bess of Hardwick, uh, which is now a National Trust property open to the public. So those are just three examples of some of the Devonshire's properties that, that they had to um, get rid of uh, to pay the death duties, but they were blessed that they had Chatsworth still, and they were able to keep their primary seat. And that's the case for a number of, of the grandest families, particularly the ducal families. Um, but there are um, there are other families, you know, it's interesting who, because of because of death duties, no longer have any family seat. You know that I know of, um, I know of families who live in farmhouses and old rectories. I even know, of, I think there's a, a, there's one of the Irish dukes lives in a ex council Pebbledash semi somewhere, because um, the title went sideways. Any remaining land holdings went to the um, the descendants of the whatever it was, the sixth duke, or whatever, and he. He has nothing, and 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 so, um, so yes, and that's again due not only to to the destruction of the country house, but also to changing laws to do with primogeniture and so forth. So, uh, another example is the Earl of Ilchester. Uh, so, the Earl of Ilchester's house, Melbury House in, Nor- in Dorset, is still standing and belongs to uh, one of the Earl's descendants, but um, the title went sideways and uh, now belongs to a normal chap living in a normal house somewhere in the midlands so um so these things have impacted these families hugely and it is or it must be hard for some of them especially ones who still live on the land that of you know their their land ancestral land but where the principal house has gone um and i think it was traumatic and you know we'll have to do a different episode on the destruction of the country house in ireland perhaps and and the burning of the country house because that was um that was much more overt uh, warfare on landowners and maybe it's too political for us to get into but um certainly um that was very traumatic for those families because they were often sitting or standing on their front lawn watching their house burn uh whereas at least those who had to sell it to do with death duties got something from it um uh but yes i think i think it had a huge impact it must have for the for those particular families have had been hugely traumatic having to sell their family portraits to pay bills um it's like us having to sell photo albums today you know photo albums of your grandparents playing with you as children that's what it's like that's what it was like for these families you know having to sell their van dykes and their and their um gainsbury's and their reynolds is like us flogging our grandparents wedding album you know it's uh it's it, it it's it's deeply personal and was deeply personal um Yes, continuing that beyond the house, so take away the house, the buildings, whatever else, the family's rooted connection with that piece of land, that estate, is also connected to the other local families in the area. So, you know, pick any house, estate where the family who've been long established in that place have left, you will find in the village 
the same generations that go back many centuries are still there, but the the head family, the family that um, in a way established the village, has left. They've gone, as Jeff has said, to they've ended up just another part of the country, and they're just um, you know lost in the wilderness as opposed to being rooted in that one place, and that is a great loss to the locality, the family. That uh, the house is important and. Um, we all love the different country houses that we visit and and talk about on the podcast, but they they are the built representation of the family, and it's important not to lose sight of that. And of course, the loss of the role of those families in in local communities. So we we see today, and we still hear so much in the press about the role of our royal family in opening hospitals, opening schools. You know, working sometimes doing five hundred or six hundred engagements per person per year we're talking two or three engagements a day visiting schools and hospitals and so forth now if you imagine the landowner or or the squire being a, a local representation of of the monarch in that they they would be the patron of the village school they would be the patron of the the local museum and the local um hospital they would cut the ribbons when a new wing was opened and and they and and they were they were uh, you know we've lost that in many uh, villages and communities uh, who don't have someone to do that and and whether for good or ill um, I think that is a loss to our heritage and our and our um, and a sense of national um, community that, it's, that we've lost that it's so interesting too we, we recently spoke to the Duchess of, of Rutland to contrast the, the role of the country house owner um, those that are are fortunate enough to still keep their house today um, and how it's it's much more pragmatic than grandiose beforehand, you know, to think of uh, these owners' ancestors who were all about hosting, entertaining, um, social statesmanship, uh, politics, uh, entertaining the grand and noble. And then you look today and it's sort of an assumed constitutional role of a patron or a steward and it's very uh very down to earth and, and completely different uh i find that really interesting a lot of the stately houses that exist today the country houses around the land and the families that have been there for centuries and are still there they are survivors they are adapters they're fighters they have found a way to meander and get through these obstacles and of course, along the way, there are many families that could have thrown in the towel and moved to a, a modern house with mod cons and everything. But they have uh, maintained these old houses, which today they are seen as great heroes of national heritage. But in the post-war years were seen as, oh, how could some one family live in this house, not seeing that it's a great um, labor and responsibility to uh, to just upkeep the house. So I would say that um, of those great houses that do survive and are flourishing, it is in no small part the uh, vitality, the effort of those families. And as we saw with the Duchess of Rutland, she is full of ideas and energy that the estate is lucky to have her and not the other way around. That's helpful. Thanks, Connor. I think um, 
there's so much more we can talk about and we should definitely revisit um this topic in 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 coming episodes um because there are so many different facets to the destruction of the country house uh, the decline and then of course we can in due course maybe with some of connor's colleagues talk about the building of new country houses in this country because there is hope still um that that you know and and of course we can we can talk we can talk more about the role of of country houses for local communities um but i think uh for me i think what i'm really thankful for is is that exhibition that roy strong organized at the vna in 1974 because it really did begin to change people's perceptions of country houses and and cause the the de- destruction of the country house to slow and gradually stop. And it was as a result of that, that we had for all its flaws, the listing system is good because it makes it much harder for people to demolish these houses um, than it was, even if it means that it's impossible to change the windows or, or change the plumbing uh, for house owners. It's a nightmare, but for the houses themselves, it has prevented the loss of more houses. Um, so we should be thankful for what we have. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think our hope is to, to talk more about that exhibition in, in future episodes uh, because there's so much more to talk about. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. And uh, yeah, thanks to people like Emma, Duchess of Rutland. Uh, it feels less like a, a cut flower in a vase to look at that will soon die in our cultural landscape. It, it feels alive and well. And uh, obviously, if you look at our Instagram comments, sometimes you may you will find people who still don't think very highly but millions of people visit these places and uh seems to be a really popular part of of uh, our culture at the moment so that's good and and uh thanks for joining us and join us next week and goodbye mm-hmm.